You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. So I, I don't know how many of you in the room have ever had a New Year's resolution to go to the gym or get fit, but I'm guessing that most of you have or know somebody at some point. And the thing about New Year's resolutions to, to go to the gym or to get fit or to start running is that usually by March or April, those dreams of having the body that you wanted or the fitness level that you wanted or the diet that you wanted have died. It's just the reality. And the reality is that, that those dreams die because at some point around March or April, you decide that, man, I'm just too sore to go back to the gym. It's just going to be too hard. Or maybe there's something else that has caught your attention that maybe there is a new way to solve the problems of your self-confidence or your emotional lack. And so maybe a new thing is a diet rather than the gym. Or, or maybe the new thing is, is that you're going to recluse, like become a recluse because you're exhausted from going to the gym. You're exhausted from the social atmosphere of the gym. But one way or another, either we experience too much difficulty and we give up, or we find that there's something better to do with our time and our energy than go to the gym. But professional athletes are not this way, right? Professional athletes know well that in order to obtain the goals set before them, whether that's to win a gold medal or whether that is to become the MVP of their league or to lead their team to a championship, that they need to go to the gym regularly, that they need to be running and lifting and eating well and entering into good rhythms of rest and recovery. But that's because they know that their life's goals are based upon their sticking with it at the gym. They know that they will never achieve the highest level of their profession if they decide that another session in the weight room is too hard. And so the question this morning as we look at a text in which Paul tells us to run the race well that we might obtain the prize is are we people who view the Christian life primarily as the next best way to solve our life's problems, or do we view the Christian life as the only life to live? Do we view the prize set before us in the life of faith as the very thing we will strive to obtain? Or is the gospel Tradition, just our New Year's resolution. Hear what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 24. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So over the past couple of weeks in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, what we've seen Paul do is, is explain that 
that as Christians, we are called to live a life where we regularly lay down our rights and our freedoms and our preferences for the sake of winning over other people in relationship that they might be saved. And this is a radical way of living in which we're constantly denying ourselves at the benefit of others. And so now we've reached this point where Paul admits that this is hard and that this is going to require discipline because if we do not run the race well into completion, we will find ourselves disqualified. And so Paul exercises discipline in his life because he knows that the Christian life of gospel ministry, of self-denial, of being others-oriented is not easy. He's outlined in verses 19 through 23 before a life of engaging with non-believers and their cultural norms in order to win them over. He says that he's become all things to all people. Well, what does it mean to be all things to all people? What does it mean when Paul says, to the Jews I become like a Jew, and to the Greeks I become like a Greek, and to those under the law I become like one under the law, but to those who are not under the law I become like one who's not under the law? Well, what Paul is talking about is a sort of lifestyle in which he engages with and embraces all people and their cultural norms in order to win them over in relationships so that he might communicate the gospel more clearly. So to be all things to all people in Montrose means that we engage with and embrace the young, ambitious professional who has his or her mind set on worldly acclaim and wealth accumulated. It means that we engage with and embrace the countercultural artist who finds their identity in creativity. It means that we engage with and embrace the politically active progressive. It means we engage with and embrace those who are ethnically and or racially different from us. Those who come from other countries than us. Those who work in different professions than us. We engage with them. We embrace them. We try to celebrate their cultural norms in order that we might win them over in relationship, that they might know the fullness of God's love and grace for them. But what Paul is telling us is that he knows this is hard. He knows that as we engage with and embrace the people around us in such a radical, others-oriented sort of way, that we will experience some things. We will experience hardship and suffering We'll experience rejection and exclusion. At one point or another, as we engage with and embrace our neighbors in love, we will receive attack from them or from the enemy. It's going to be hard. There's going to be nights of of feeling discouraged. There's going to be seasons of feeling like these relationships are going nowhere. There's going to be seasons of feeling like nobody wants me to be around. Paul knew that. He also knew that that as we engage with and embrace a world 
that is marked by sin around us that we will feel tempted to immerse ourselves so much in the lifestyles of others that we begin to embrace parts of that lifestyle that are detrimental to our faith. Paul knows that that, that in engaging with and embracing the lifestyle of the young, ambitious professional, that we might start to believe the things they believe about material wealth satisfying emptiness and void. As we engage with and embrace those who are caught up in, in a lifestyle of of drinking too much or using drugs, that we might feel the desire to engage with that as well. We might even justify it on the altar of ministry. Paul also knew that there would be seasons in which in the midst of our faithfulness, in the midst of us pressing into relationships, in the midst of giving ourselves over to all people, that we will experience less gospel fruit than we hope for. That there will be weeks and months and maybe even years where all of our loving of people, all of our caring for people, all of our inviting people into the glorious kingdom of God where his grace abounds that nobody will come to faith. And we'll be discouraged. We'll be tempted to think that this life in the urban core of Houston where I'm paying way too much on my rent or my mortgage, where I'm spending way too much at work because my job's demanding, where I have no space at home, that it's just too hard. And it's not, it's not going anywhere. Nobody's coming to the Lord, so why don't I have my comfort? Paul knew this very well. He knew that as he became a Jew to the Jews that he would feel tempted to once again, as he had in his former life, put his hope in Jewish customs and rituals. He knew that he might be tempted to be satisfied with the pleasures of the pagan world around him as he engaged with the pagan world around him. He might be tempted to believe that his discomfort and his hard work in the gospel just wasn't worth it. And he might be tempted to forget God's promises to sustain him and to encourage him and to shepherd him and to forgive him when he fails. See, Paul probably knew well Jesus' teaching of the parable of the sower. The the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4 is probably the most important parable that we have from the teaching of Jesus. It reads like this, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And then there's this beautiful scene following this in, in the Gospel of Mark in which Jesus, in private, explains the mystery of this parable to his disciples. And he explained... That, that the sower is the one sowing the word. 
the word of the gospel. And these are the ones along the path. The ones along the path are those who hear, yet Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. And then there are the ones on the rocky ground, and those are the ones, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with great joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those who were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and hundredfold. So in Paul talking about lives of, of ministry in which we're, we're devoted to people, devoted to the Lord, denying ourselves this hard work of gospel ministry that he's telling us should last an entire life. He knows well that there are those in Corinth who have received the gospel word with joy and are seemingly invested in it and are seemingly walking in it, but when persecution comes, they will be gone. Paul also knows that those are there are those in Corinth who, who have heard the word and are seemingly calling themselves Christians. They're seemingly engaging with the church as a Christian would. But eventually, the trappings of the life and the world around them will convince them that it's better than what God has for them in his kingdom. And they too will fall away. And so... It is that in the Bible, it is clear that there are people who either believe themselves to be Christians or who call themselves Christians who simply are not. Who simply have made a New Year's resolution to the Lord, but when it gets too hard or when something else seems better, they will walk away. Yet we need to know what the stakes are. The stakes are receiving this imperishable wreath or this prize. There are a few things in this text that I think we need to define. That is, what is this prize that Paul is talking about? What does it mean to run the race to completion? And what does Paul talk about when he says he fears being disqualified? Well, first, the prize or the imperishable wreath is this. It is the promised inheritance for those who have been invited by grace on the merits of Jesus into God's kingdom. 1 Peter 5, 4 says that it's an unfading crown of glory. Romans 8, 18 says it is a future glory yet to be revealed. 1 Peter chapter 1 says that it's a perfect and undefiled inheritance kept in heaven for us. Simply put, based upon Revelation 19, Revelation 21, and Philippians 3.8, the race we run in the faith and ministry and obedience 
right now, this race that we run right now, is in order to receive a glorious existence in completely unadulterated union with the God of the universe. For those who continue to hope in Christ's work on their behalf, continue to give themselves over to the selflessness of gospel ministry, we will one day be presented before our Lord Jesus Christ in full splendor and righteousness as a bride is presented to her husband. We will be presented in white linens to wear that he has purchased for us by his blood. And in that time, God will dwell with us in a new creation in which we no longer have to experience the pains of tears and death and mourning and crying and pain and thirst anymore. The prize set before us is the prize of being in a world that is completely saturated in God's kingdom and and God's glory and no longer toiling about in a world of sin that we might invite others into the kingdom of God. And so running the race to completion means that we love other Christians sacrificially as we saw in chapter 8. It means that we radically serve and engage with unbelievers in order to win them over and see them saved. We saw that in chapter 9. And all the while we're doing this, staying within the law of Christ, even while engaging with a world of sin. That's verse 21 in chapter 9. Hebrews 12 would say that, that to run the race to completion means that we lay aside every weight and sin which clings so near. And we do this until our dying breath. We often have heard a phrase, I'm sure, if you've been around the church, especially in the South for any length of time. You've heard the the phrase, once saved, always saved. And and we've heard that perverted into this idea that if at one time you said a prayer that someone told you to pray, that you can go and live your life however you want to live, and you've experienced the grace of God and salvation. But what we saw last week as we unpacked the beauty of the gospel is that if we truly see God's gospel for what it is, if we're truly moved by it, that we would never walk away from it. If we truly see what it is that God has accomplished for us in Jesus, that we'll give ourselves wholly over to it. And what Paul is telling us now and what is told to us elsewhere all throughout the New Testament is that it is not whether or not we once said a prayer. It's whether or not on our dying breath we are still hoping in Christ's work on our behalf. That we're still hoping that his kingdom is established on earth as we've experienced it established in our hearts and as we will experience it established forever in glory. And what Paul tells us is that if we do not run this race to completion, if we do not live this sort of life compelled by the beauty of what God has accomplished for us in his son, that we risk being disqualified. He himself feels that weight. And if the Apostle Paul feels the weight, I think it would be fair for us to feel the weight as well. When Paul refers to being disqualified, he refers to the seeds that were burnt up by the sun and choked out by the vines. 
those who are burnt out by the weight of suffering and difficulties, and those who run back to the things of the world when the gospel seems less beautiful than it did the day before. And so Paul is calling us to live this life of sacrifice, a life in which we're completely devoted to others and to showing them the love of God that we've been shown in Christ, lives in which we lay down our rights and our freedoms for the sake of others. And he says that we need to do that forever. And if you're anything like me, you're probably thinking, well, well, just one week of it is hard. Like just one night of really giving myself over to the work of engaging with people who are not like me for the sake of seeing them come to know the Lord, even just one night of that is hard. How am I going to do that forever? Yet that's the very question that Paul had asked himself and is providing an answer for. In order to live a life like this, we must not only be in love with the Lord and in awe of his gospel, but we must be a disciplined people. We have to be professional athletes and not just people with a January membership at the YMCA. We have to exercise discipline and self-control. The question is, what does that really mean? Like, Paul's using these athletic comparisons. Does that mean that we actually just need to go to the gym? Surely not. But what we can learn from athletes is that they train and that they rest and that they eat for the purposes of reaching their goals. And so we must also be a people who train and rest and eat in order to maintain spiritual health in the gospel. See, training requires the working of muscles needed to perform a certain task. And sometimes it seems like it's impossible It seems like all we do is fail, but we must continue to practice these things. We must continue to work these muscles out in order to do it for a lifetime. And what I mean is the work of gospel ministry. Building relationships and embracing the people and the culture of our neighborhood is not initially going to feel like the natural inclination. But as we do it day in and day out for weeks and months and years, it will grow to be our habit and our lifestyle. Sharing the gospel with people in conversation will at first seem very awkward and uncomfortable. We'll always feel like we're intruding on someone or, or we're the very person that we didn't want to be when we were a non-believer. But as we engage with people, as we invite people to experience relationship with God through Jesus, as we over and over and over invite people into the grace that we've experienced, it will not only get easier, but it will be our natural way of living. At first, it will seem awkward to invite a coworker or a friend or a neighbor to come and experience the grace of God at your neighborhood parish gathering. But eventually, we'll be a church that 
that is inviting any and all people that we have relationship with because we know that in the context of the church, we hear and receive the word of life in the gospel of Jesus and that there's nothing better than that and it will one day feel natural and not awkward. But just like working out in January is overly exhausting, so are developing these muscles in gospel ministry. We have to be a people who love all people. Uh, we have to love them enough to engage with them and their worlds with generosity and with listening and with a, a discerning spirit trying to understand. It means we're willing to engage with and even embrace cultural norms and preferential differences so long as they are morally neutral, so long as they are not outside the law of Christ. So we train, but we also rest. We rest in, in both a physical way and an emotional way. On a practical side, if you are spending every evening of your week out late with friends who aren't believers because you think that you need to be up till midnight every day of the week in order to be giving yourself over to gospel ministry, yet you're failing at your job, you're failing at work, you're growing emotionally exhausted, you're getting physically ill, then you are not running the race well. A life of gospel ministry and gospel belief is a marathon church. It's not a sprint. We have to exercise in rhythms of rest. We have to know that we need to eat and exercise and, and spend time alone, and we need to retreat at times. We don't need to adopt a cultural view of self-care above all else, but we do need to take care of ourselves. But we also rest spiritually. What we see in the life and the ministry of Jesus is a, a man who is morally perfect in a way that we certainly are not. Who was gifted in gospel ministry in a way that we certainly are not. Yet who regularly retreated from even his closest of friends to spend time alone with the Lord in prayer. What we see in the life and the ministry of Jesus is a man who rested among the people of God. And experience grace through them. We see in the life and ministry of Jesus a man who was completely devoted and understanding of the promises of God and the faithfulness set before him, and he rested in those things. Church, if we are not a praying people, if we're not consistently petitioning the Lord to bear our burdens for us, if we're not consistently asking him to sustain us in the faith, to remind us of his promises, to reveal to us his beauty, that we might be compelled by it so that we can continue moving forward in gospel ministry, things will get too hard or we'll become convinced something is better. So we train and we rest, but we also eat. We consume the very word of God as we read it regularly, as we sit under faithful teaching of the Bible in the context of the local church, as we engage with one another in our neighborhood parishes, sharpening each other in the gospel, as we read and understand the promises of God and put our whole hope in what he has given to us and promised for us. As we are a people who know God's word more, who understand his truth more, who experience biblical teaching more, and who train ourselves in godliness through the word 
in this we will be able to run the race well. We will be able to run the race not going outside the law of Christ because we will intimately know the law of Christ. But church, if we do not train, if we do not rest, and if we do not consume the grace of God in His Word, we are a people at risk of being disqualified. Yet we can be tempted to believe that this text's call for us is, is that we would earn our salvation. When we're met with the doctrine of persevering in the face, faith, we can feel tempted to believe that really it's all on us. That I have to maintain my belief in the gospel, that I have to maintain my faithfulness in gospel ministry, that I have to maintain my habits of quiet time and, and reading my Bible and spending time in prayer and coming to the Sunday gathering and resting with my neighborhood parish because otherwise I'm going to lose what I have in the Lord. But let us be clear, church, there is nothing here that we are earning. Nowhere will you see Paul saying that if you run the race well enough, then God might give you the prize. But the gospel message is this, that in the midst of the suffering that we will experience and that we're at risk of not overcoming, we have a Lord and Savior in Jesus Christ who looked at the suffering before him with joy that he might sustain us in the future through suffering. When we're met with temptation to pursue the things of the world, we have a God and a Savior in Jesus who is faithful and victorious over temptation. The prize set before us is not something that we might get if we live the Christian life good enough, but it's something that was bought for and paid for and is waiting for us and is currently ours because of what Christ has done. Let us not confuse the gospel with a call to religious do-gooding. The gospel is the call of God to enter into his kingdom and through which his son has absorbed his wrath towards sin, has accomplished victory over death, and has invited us to experience all the blessings of that victory, not only now, but even more fully then. The prize is yours this morning if you are in Christ. If you've hoped in the Lord this morning, then the prize is already yours. What Paul is warning us against is seeking another prize. A prize that is far less glorious. A prize that is far more temporary. And a prize that will ultimately lead to our destruction. We've talked over the past few weeks about doing this sort of gospel ministry that people might be saved. Yet it struck me that we have not yet said what it is we think they will be saved from. To be saved is Christian language that has been used since the Bible was written, but we don't often talk about what it is that we're hoping that people are saved from or that we ourselves are saved from. And there's really only two places in the New Testament that give us that answer. Romans 5 verse 9 and 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10. And the answer is the same in both of those texts, and it is simple. 
through what Jesus has accomplished in his perfect life, in his sacrificial death, in his glorious resurrection, that we believe by the power of the Spirit we are saved from the wrath of God. Now, I know the wrath of God is kind of a bad word in today's day and age, but the reality is, is that is what we are saved from. And it is good news because we have a God who is not only gracious and merciful and loving, but who is just. And that in his justice and his grace, working together, he has invited us into a kingdom in which we do not have to experience his wrath toward our rebellion if we take upon the righteousness of his son, which he's freely given to. A glorious promise of the future hope of the gospel is that God's kingdom is advancing such that there will be a time when the fullness of the new creation is the the God, the, the people of God's inheritance. That God's kingdom will prevail against all kingdoms of earth and against the kingdom of sin. And it will prevail against it by the righteous wrath of God. And as those who have been saved from that wrath by the work in Jesus, we have the glorious opportunity to step into the kingdom work of seeing that kingdom advancing, not by God's wrath crushing our neighbors and co-workers and friends, but by them seeing that the gospel in Jesus Christ is not only powerful to save them from temporary things, but to save them from eternity, eternal things as well. Yet this life will be hard. Ministry and obedience will be hard. Immersing ourselves in relationships with those we are not like will be hard. We will suffer and we will be tempted to believe that another pursuit is better. But as we train ourselves in godliness by practicing in ministry, as we rest in the promises of God and in the power of prayer in a God who hears and responds to us faithfully, as we remind each other and ourselves of God's promises for us, as we read and know our Bibles so that we can know what is true and powerful and good, as we do those things, God will be faithful in his promises once again, and he has a promise to sustain his people into the end. God has promised that the good work he began in those who have faith in him, he will bring to completion. This is not on us, church. There is a call to discipline. There is a call to self-control. There is a call to running the race well, but let us not be confused. This call is not for us to be strong, but for us to access the strength of God. This is not a call for us to save sinners, but a call for us to invite people to know the God who saves sinners. And it's a call that is deeply worth it. It's worth it because we can experience present blessings now. There is not only a future prize set before us, but right now we can have peace knowing that God has established peace between us and him through his son. We can have the fullness of God's love as he views us, not as those toiling about that he might dangle before us a prize, but those who have been given a prize that he is inviting us to experience us in the future. 
We can experience belonging as adopted and redeemed children of the God of the universe within the context of the local church. And we can experience forgiveness. Forgiveness for when we, for a moment, believe the lie that there is a better prize to be experienced than the one set before us. Forgiveness for when we believe that the suffering that we're currently experiencing in the Christian life isn't worth it. There are present blessings, and there is a future prize that is far more glorious. One day, church, if we sustain until the end by the power of God's Spirit, if we reach the finish line proclaiming the glory and the grace and the beauty of Christ, we will receive crowns of glory earned for us by our precious Savior who gave us a place in His kingdom. His kingdom against which no other kingdom will prevail. I was reading Joshua recently and and if you've read Joshua, there's a portion in which, which all of the promised lands of inheritance are given to the tribes of Israel. And if you don't know what that means, suffice, suffice it to say that God's people were promised a land to dwell in, in, in which they would experience peace. And, and there's a time in the book of Joshua in which God's people experience rest, and so all the different tribes of Israel are given their lands that they were promised to dwell in. And there's this beautiful passage in which Joshua writes, and so it was that all of the promised inheritance were given to the people of God. And none of the kingdoms prevailed against God's kingdom. All came to pass. Church, that is a foreshadowing of a much more beautiful inheritance, a much more sustained rest, and a much more glorious reality in which the kingdom of God will prevail against Satan, sin, death, suffering, disease, mourning, tears, loss, loneliness, and he will do it by the power of his son. Yet he will use his people graciously in that. Would we join him in it? Let's pray. Father, would you establish your kingdom in this theater and in this neighborhood and in this city, not so that we can be winners, but so that people can experience your love and your grace and your salvation. So that people might be freed from addiction and bondage and despair and enter into rest and love and acceptance. Lord, would you reach the outcast among us through our faithfulness? Sustain us for the work of ministry. Remind us of your promises presently. Teach us always by your word that we might be an outpost of your kingdom. That we might be an outpost of your glory, of your grace, and of your love that others might enter into the rest that you are establishing. We ask these things in the power of the resurrected Lord.